You are now listening to the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. Wait, the answer was Add 10 Gallons? Add 10 Gallons. My first thought was, we got to put Act Chill. Yeah, great. <laughs> Trucks on the, on the way. On the way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. I've got two observations, uh, neither of which are really educated or well thought out. <laughs> which are like most of my observations are. There aren't a lot of problems on a job site that can't be solved with a sack full of biscuits. Today's episode of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast is brought to you by Actigel 208. Actigel 208 is a high-performance additive for the concrete industry that is greatly beneficial to the producer. It enables them to increase the percentage of manufactured sand by up to 100% and completely replace all the natural sand in the mix. In areas where natural sand is scarce, inconsistent, and expensive, this provides a huge benefit to any ready-mix company out there. Benefits of manufactured sand and concrete include consistent air content, improved compaction, and increased density. Now in the past, the downside of using manufactured sands was that they were hard to pump, hard to place, and hard to finish. Well, Actigel 208 solves all those issues. By improving suspension, stability, and the quality of the cement paste in the mix, Actigel overcomes the old issues with manufactured sand and leaves them behind. Let Actigel 208 improve the quality of your mix while saving money on every yard you produce. For more information, visit us at actigel.com. That's A-C-T-I-G-E-L dot com. And with that, we welcome you in to the next installment of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We might not be number one, but I bet the Tennessee Volunteers are here shortly. Joey Bell, what do you got to say about yourself? Oh, it's the best weather we've had in uh, probably 15 or 16 years. High around 52, <laughs> low around 49. Feels like 98, though. <laughs> I wonder where he was going with that. <laughs> That's pretty inside joke, way inside. If you didn't watch, if you didn't watch the Tennessee Alabama game, the final score is fifty-two forty-nine, uh, Tennessee's way. In case you've been living under a rock, Paul, have you been living under a rock? I don't want to play this game anymore. <laughs> Paul gets to see how the other half lives now. <laughs> he might as well have been under a rock during that game because he was out of the country with little to no internet service. Yeah, can't get into where we were or what we were doing. But, yeah, I was in a foreign country uh, on an island with literally no cell phone service. And I would get Wi-Fi, and it was horrible Wi-Fi, so it was spotty. And you couldn't see football when you were over there. I was over there for a while. And, of course, it had to be the third Saturday in October. And so my brother is messaging me because uh, iMessage would work when you had Wi-Fi or WhatsApp would work when you had Wi-Fi. And so he's messaged me like play-by-play play of the game, and it was just awful, absolutely awful. My stomach was turning. I was actually in a mess hall, and our coworker was like, I really hope Alabama wins because I don't think I can handle you the rest of the day if this <laughs> goes the wrong way. And so I'm reading iMessage. I got the three dots, 
they're like, oh, you know, they left us too much time. We got Bryce Young. He goes right down the field. We get a chance to kick a game-winning field goal with a former, or I'm sorry, a future NFL kicker. And what does he do? Missed. Unbelievable. And they somehow go the other half of the field in five seconds and make a field goal. I just absolutely awful. Congratulations to Tennessee, to Joey. Um, people coming out of the woodwork to text me like I wasn't aware of what was going on <laughs> and needed to hear from everyone and all their horrible opinions, but whatever. Well, if it, uh, if it makes you feel any better uh, to show the respect that I have for you, I didn't reach out to you. Well, I, I think I sent a text out to you and uh, Josh that night and I basically just said, Paul, we'll talk next week. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, I, so out of respect for you, I didn't you know, kick you when you were down and could barely defend yourself with no internet, but instead I waited until we got on this internationally broadcasted radio program <laughs> <laughs> to talk trash. But in all seriousness, I'm still so jaded as a, uh, as a person with uh, battered vol syndrome that the reality of going eight and four for me is still real. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's like uh, everybody listens to us. Hopefully y'all watch SEC Shorts, the YouTube channel. It's fantastic. Like the last four episodes are all about Tennessee as a central character. And you notice hope has not entered any of those videos. She's on the way. I, I would <laughs> venture after this weekend – she either makes an appearance in a positive or a very negative direction of Tennessee. Yeah, either way, right? What happened the you know the week of the Tennessee Alabama game? You know they had this whole list of things that things you couldn't or things that people weren't able to do the last time Tennessee beat Alabama. It was like they couldn't tweet about it. They couldn't. I forget. I, there's a whole list of stuff. And just thinking back, it, it legit. It was fifteen years. Uh, yeah. 20, 2006 was the last time we beat Alabama, and to you know go down that list and think of all the things that weren't there, you know, and doesn't seem that long ago, but it, it was unreal to see all that stuff that wasn't around back then. Yeah, the iPhone didn't exist. I mean, forget iPads and stuff. The iPhone did not mm -hmm. exist last time Tennessee beat Alabama. Speaking of things that do get updated in the concrete world, I got one for you. So. In the state of Montana, the building code there has been revised so that 3D printed walls are given equal viability com as compared to concrete block walls. In in their um, like book of standards. Yeah, the yeah, the yeah the building code. The building nice. code in Montana recognizes 3D printed concrete can be a substitute in place of like uh, you know block walls for homes like the. First floor of a home made out of block walls can now be 3D printed concrete. That's awesome. So you so you predict that it's going to happen on a state by state basis, uh, and it doesn't necessarily like that adoption doesn't have to necessarily be driven by the ASTM or ACI or any type of industry. It could just happen by individual state DOT departments or state just states in general. Yes, yeah, an aspect of this we've never talked about. Yeah. Is we're always concerned that the industry is not going to adopt it. And when we talk about regulation, we're thinking about 
policies and programs that run through ACI and then RMCA and all these places, but we don't, we haven't really talked about here about approvals from the states. Mm-hmm. And so in this case, Montana is the first state to come out and be like, you know what, if you want to 3D print these uh, retaining walls or basement walls, have at it. And checked out this uh, 3D printer. This Joker's on tracks. I like this one. This isn't like a 3D printer that's on a truss system. This one's like a robot printer that... So for the listeners here, we will we'll cut this up into a YouTube clip and put it on Insta or uh, yeah, put it on Instagram and LinkedIn as well. But if you're driving right now, essentially this 3D printer, it's a single arm, three axis machine, so it goes forward, backwards, up, down, side to side. Um, but it's not stationary. It's actually on a set of tracks that you would see on a on a tank or an excavator or something. It, and then it, it on, does look like a tank, like the yeah. way the base is built. And then on each side, on all four corners, the front and back of each tank track, there's actual like pneumatic um, stabilization leveler pads, kind of like you would see in like an auto leveling system on an RV or something like that. So I guess it moves, becomes stationary, does its job, then can, can move infinitely to build as big of a structure as you want. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty sweet, right? Joey and I just got back from ACI in Dallas, and we were actually in a committee meeting for 3D printing. And, you know, while states like Montana are looking to adopt this kind of technology, you know, not to talk out of school or throw anybody under the bus, but you know how slow those committee meetings can move sometimes. And they were talking about what to call it. You know, do we call this 3D printing ink, 3D printing concrete, um, mortar? A medium? Like a cementitious medium? There's all kinds of terms thrown out there. There was a debate on whether it was mortar versus concrete because in a lot of this conventional 3D, quote-unquote, concrete, I guess we can start saying now, there's not any or very little coarse aggregate that I've seen in there. So they are essentially placing mortar, you know, just sand, cement, and water, of course, whatever additives. But if there's no coarse aggregate in there, then the definition of concrete uh, if you go by that, then that's not concrete, that's mortar. Yeah, and it's the Wild West right now. I mean, we're not going to get too far into mixed design and things of that nature because, honestly, we don't have the expertise. But uh, I mean, really, everyone's kind of working towards gaining that expertise right now. And, I mean, you can look at fibers, you know, small aggregate, um, and, and even like what we've talked about on this podcast many times, you could put about anything in concrete. So I'm sure people are looking at you know, ground glass and different kind of poslons and stuff like that. But, I mean, to your to your point earlier, it's it's not necessarily the traditional concrete that you would you would think of coming out of the back of a ready mix truck. Right. We'll have a future guest on here, uh, not this episode, but the next episode, and we'll talk about what they're doing. It's a little bit different, and they're solving one of the problems that we see. And if you don't have reinforcement in these walls. I just don't see how you're like, well, we love fiber. Some of our best friends work in the fiber business, big giant fans of fiber, but that doesn't help with the sheer stresses that these walls are experiencing. You've got to be able to provide that reinforcement. It's a huge challenge for these 3d printed mortar guys right now as they tried to make these advancements. What there's a, a post that uh, Seth Tandit, uh, from Concrete Logic podcast, tagged me in on LinkedIn, and it's something they don't like to show on these 
3D printed structures is how easy it is to have settlement cracking. And these are massive cracks, like one millimeter or larger separations going through many, many, many layers all the way down because the consistency you need when printing these layers is so difficult to achieve. It's difficult for us as ready-mix guys to make consistent batches of concrete. Well, what if the consistency of every batch is almost not, like the tolerances are so tight because it's 3D printing method, and then the ability to make adjustments on the fly is not very easy because it's continuous process rather than a batch process. So if a batch shows up and it's a little too wet, you can dry it up. Or if it's a little too dry, you can wet it up. But if it's a continuous process, then you're doing your very best to make it right in that moment be the exact water cement ratio you need and then pump it through the line and hope you don't run into any problems because as you're printing around, if one section is a little drier or one section is a little wetter, your sub base isn't exactly right, boom, you got massive issues. I just, man, it's going to be tough. It's exciting, but these are the challenges that we're all going to have to think of and think about how we're going to overcome them if we want to see this be successful. And we do. Like, we like technology. We think technology is awesome. So we want to see these guys be successful. So if you start coming across this stuff, you know, what we're trying to do here, or at least I am, I don't want to speak for these guys, but what I'm trying to do is think about these things and then offer solutions. And right now, I don't have a solution for that. So it just sounds like I'm complaining into the ether. Yeah. No, but there's plenty of people out there working on the solutions, that's for sure. And we've had a few on the program, and we'll continue to have guys from that industry uh, come on and talk about it because it's definitely something we're keeping an eye on. Yeah, so I'm excited to see what the future of that is. Uh, you know, I was going to ask Joey what he wanted to talk about, but all he wants to talk about is Alabama versus Tennessee, and I'm tired of talking about that. So, Josh, what do you have? Yeah, well, since we're a couple weeks removed from that, uh, <laughs> Joey's got the right to take like a couple weeks to come down from that high. I don't know. People probably thought we weren't doing this show so that I could avoid talking about <laughs> You're probably right. Tennessee game. You're probably right. No, I, I stumbled across something um, interesting just perusing the Internet and, um, you know, talk about, you know, advancements and, and um, adjustments that you have to make on job sites with these 3D printers and stuff like that. As advanced as that is, imagine having to tackle the age-old problem of rats. Rat? Like That's mice? Right. Like giant mice rat? Uh, well, this is particular to New York City, so we're talking big, giant, cat-sized rats. <laughs> and so let me read you the headline, and then I'll go in on it, all right? So NYC law targets construction sites as part of a new rat abatement program. Essentially, a new set of laws will go into effect uh, next year, the beginning of next year, Q1, that will aim to curb one of New York City's most notorious problems. Essentially, the Rat Action Plan will put in legislation that will require construction contractors to pay for a an exterminator on hand. Like they'll have to have an, an, a third party exterminator at the job site when they're doing any kind of excavation. Is this already been passed? Yes, it goes in. It goes into effect Q1 of next year. Wow. So the city couldn't solve the rat crisis. So now they're forcing private companies. Yes. To try and solve it for them. Yep. Where the proposed construction work involves 50% of more of the floor area of a building, 
Um, and then what else? Where the proposed vertical or horizontal enlargement increases the amount of building floor area by more than 25%. So if you're expanding the floor by more than 25%, or if you're working on more than 50% of the floor of, a, of an existing building, and then obviously on all new construction where you're running excavation, you have to have a third party like exterminator service on site to mitigate any rat infestation issues. This makes me so mad. <laughs> Do you guys remember, uh, what was that Liam Neeson movie? from several years ago, like the gray or something where he's like plane crashes and he's, he's like alone in the wilderness or he's got a couple guys with him in the wilderness. Anyway, what made me think of that is in that movie, in the beginning, Liam Neeson's job is up in like Alaska or like way Northern Canada. And he works with this pipeline crew or some kind of oil crew or whatever. His job is to shoot wolves like during the work hours, he's like sits up there on top of this hill and he shoots <laughs> wolves, you know, to kind of keep them away from uh, the the crews there. So, are they going to have some uh, <laughs> some guy from Brooklyn with a twenty two with rat shot <laughs> doing the same thing, keeping rats well, away from the the crews? Well, there? Seeing, seeing as it's New York City, he probably won't be carrying a firearm. A bear. It'll probably be some poor old boy from Orkin with some pellets. That sounds like some union stuff, too, like some mm. union guy cooked that position up. Well, hey, before we go down that rabbit hole, because I'm not in the mood for a rant today, um, there is a list that came along with this article, and you guys might find it exciting to know that New York City actually isn't number one in rat infestation issues. You want to guess who the number one? All right, so the number one ranked metropolitan region by a number of rodent treatment platforms that were performed i guess like i guess when you call and schedule for like an exterminator for like rodent extraction or whatever you want to call it they categorize that and log it so the metropolitan area with the most i guess calls to get rid of rat issues you guys want you guys want to take a stab on what the city is baltimore washington can you give me uh the state that it's in no that'd be way too obvious no then I'll just say San Francisco since he said G- D.C., which is what I would have guessed. Oh, you guys are close. You guys are close. So Chicago is number one. Chicago. Incredible. Well, right. hold on a second. I don't like the measuring metric that DC, you used. Like DC, num- D.C. is four. San Francisco is five. So oh, you guys are neck and neck. neck. <laughs> but I don't like that measurement, like how many calls. That's like you can have all the rats in the world, but if you don't like call somebody about it, then you're just like living with it. You stuff. I heard that there are as many rats in New York City as there are people, and that the bio or more than that, and like the biomass of rats is like equal to that of people in the city of New York. Oh, I, I'd subscribe to that theory. That does. I wouldn't surprise me. But that's crazy. I remember Baltimore having so many rats. And I remember when I lived up there, every now and then I'd get off work and I'd go sit on the back porch and smoke a cigar and drink a glass of bourbon. And I'd watch them rats run up and down the alleyway till dark. And them was mm-hmm. big suckers too. Like you, were, like you were talking about big as a house cat. They were legit as big as a cat. Most populated area that had rats I've ever seen. Yeah. I'm not going to name names here, but there's a certain individual that um, works for the same company that we do. And uh, when he was living in that area of town, um, close to Joey Bell, him and his buddies that lived in the alleyway, they would have a competition to see who could kill the biggest one. They would go week by week. They'd shoot them with pellet guns. I remember that. 
I thought it was like uh, like they set a, a quote unquote season for it. Like I don't know if it was a month or however long. And at the end of this season, like however many were in the house, let's say there were four people in the house. If uh, whoever killed the biggest rat, like the other three had to pitch in and get it mounted. Is that right? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I forgot about that part, but you you are correct. Man, y'all got some weird friends. Hey, Baltimore is number seven on this list, by the way, so they got plenty to shoot at. Is Philadelphia on the list? They are number six. Number six, yeah. <laughs> I live outside of Philly, technically. To me, I feel like I live in a city. Everybody that lives where I live, they're like, this is not a city. Like, well, there's row homes and high-rises. I don't know what you call this, but whatever. There's not really a lot of rats around where I'm at, but I've seen some places in Philadelphia that look like they would have lots of them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and really on this list, if I read you the top ten, there's really only one that would pop out and be kind of like surprising, and that's Denver at number ten. So like we're going, all right, from first to, from first to tenth, we got Chicago, New York, L.A., D.C., San Francisco, Philly, Baltimore, Cleveland, Detroit, and Denver. So out of all that, I'm like, oh, well, Denver's trying a little hard to get to get in that top ten. They just want to get noticed. Yeah, the other nine makes sense. <laughs> the other nine. <laughs> well, golly, I'm just thinking back to the fact that the, the government who's in charge of taking care of the city is like, you know what, we're going to make private industry take care of the city for us because we're doing such a horrible job of it. It makes me so mad. Beyond just being angry, I'm just laughing to myself because when you're running a business and you're pricing in all of your costs into your projects so that you can make sure that you're covering that and still make a profit, like, how are you going to, like, pencil in, like, rat exterminator into your costs? Like, oh, yeah, don't forget Mr. Accounting and Finance Guy. Yeah. <laughs> we need to – how many uh, – how many rat hours per project or geez, per cubic yard or square foot? Like, how are you going to divide that up? Get it out of here. <laughs> yeah, man. It, uh, yeah. So figure you guys would find that mildly entertaining. And then on top, on top of all that, like another dumb problem, same grouping of uh, articles that I was reading, the headline reads, top reasons workers don't use PPE properly. Oh, gosh. I immediately scoffed. <laughs> <laughs> Please continue. Yeah, so parody, parody. <laughs> we do not endorse. How many times have we said that on this show? We do yeah. not endorse what these people are saying. Yeah. But, yeah, so uh, this is according to a new survey. What survey? I'm not 100%. Oh, by PPE provider J.J. Keller Safe Gear. So Safe Gear. Hmm. I may trust that survey. I'm not sure. I mean, who else is going to do the survey? Uh, employers. Nerds. If it was an employer survey, I probably wouldn't. I actually, probably wouldn't. It. Yeah, you know yeah. they're going to lie. They're going to fudge a little bit. Yeah, I, I wear my hard hat 99% of the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess if it's just the, the provider, they're a little bit more likely to be truthful. But they go on to say that uh, most employees most often don't wear PPE because they simply don't want to. That was the number one reason. According to the survey, over 70% of those surveys indicated that they don't wear it because they don't want to. I mean, you can't argue with that. America. 
Furthermore, they said they didn't think the PPE was necessary or that it made the job more difficult. Making the job more difficult, I can see that one. It's tough to get around that. Especially with like some of the gloves that they require you to wear. I don't yes. see how people work with some of these gloves at all. Like the place that I just was, that we can't talk about where I was, there were people, like they took safety, like ultra super duper serious. And you really kind of have to when you're there, you really don't have a choice. But like those guys were walking around weighted down in safety gear. And sometimes the gloves, like I don't even know how they were fitting these hoses and pipes together that they were putting together. I, I didn't even know how they were gripping the wrenches and stuff to make this happen. It was mind boggling me to even watch them work because I didn't know how they were physically articulating their fingers to grab these things and make these things work. It was, it was crazy. But hard hats, almost everybody wears their hard hat. That's the one where like you've had enough stuff hit you in the head, even as like a kid, as a young man, because we're all boys and we all do dumb stuff. I, knew, I realized that having a daughter and her being in first grade and we go to the playground and like the difference between the little girls playing and the little boys playing, oh my God, they're almost not the same thing. Like, yeah. like little barbarians. Little barbarians. Oh my God. <laughs> like, dude. Dude, barbarians are perfect. They were like almost tribal, and they've yeah. got all these six and seven year olds, and they like, they all found sticks like as big as they were, and they're just, they just like automatically form a circle and start oh, 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 like <laughs> jamming the stick into the ground, go oh, 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 yeah, you know they're running around hitting each other with sticks. <laughs> I was like, what? This is oh. crazy. What was that book we all had to read, Lord of the Flies? Yeah. Oh, oh <laughs> dude, thank thank God. There were adults around. It would have been Lord of the Flies quick. And let me tell you, those little girls would have not had a say in anything. They were so scared. They were just like looking along, looking on in like amusement and amazement. Like, whoa, what is going on over there? <laughs> it sounds like everything in my house is about to be broken because I got one of each. Yeah, for sure. Well, y'all ever, I, when you were uh, telling that story, it reminded me of that episode of South Park when the, the girls start going through puberty and it makes all the boys start acting like cavemen or whatever. You remember that episode? <laughs> all the boys so, start going through rut. <laughs> yeah, it was so hilarious. Well, okay. So there was a study I read recently where it was talking about creativity. So the whole idea was like, how come we as managers in the corporate world are not creative? How do we have such a hard time with creativity? And so many people who even do creative things, like, you know, we created a concrete podcast and we were one of the first ones to come up with, with this style. And our style is creative. It's not like any other podcast out there. But I don't know that we look at each other at ourselves and think that we're inherently creative. And most people kind of think that way, like, oh, I'm not creative. I'm missing this gene. It's, it's something special. So they did like this huge, like 30, 40 year study on people. And what they found was like creativity is through the roof in kids until they get to like sixth grade. Oh. And then it just falls off a cliff, absolutely falls off a cliff. And then, like, as you become an adult, it kind of bounces back a little bit, but no, nowhere near levels of creativity uh, to the point of, like, sixth grade. So up, 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 sixth grade, off a cliff. And, like, this huge case study that they did, that they built around it, trying to analyze it uh, about, like, oh, what are the reasons for this? Is it because of social engineering? Is it because of pressures and conformity and the education system, all this stuff? And the whole time I'm thinking, I'm like, no, they went through puberty. Yeah. And guys aren't thinking about anything 
except them ladies across the other side yeah. of the room. That's why the creativity went down. You want to see creativity? Watch a man try to get a girl's attention. That's creative. <laughs> so, Joey, good luck to me and you when uh, life gets to those stages with our young young girls or whatever. But yeah, that's good, man. That was good. That was a good little add-on there. I enjoyed that. We give you we give you all kinds of things to talk about and ponder here on the Ad Thing Concrete. This podcast. is a concrete <laughs> podcast. <laughs> we talk, talk college football, <laughs> creativity, case studies for forty years, longevity, cities, rat infestation issues. <laughs> yes, sir. That now that. I'm still mad about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's let's bring this back on the tracks here and get to a... Uh, you want to introduce our guest here for this podcast? Yeah, our guest today is Tiffany Duffy. She was recommended by us... I'm sorry, recommended to us by Alec Yancey. And she brings an absolute world of experience from supplementary cementitious materials. And so we go way deep on fly ash, what that world's looking like right now, and where she's at in her journey and what new products and services that they're going to be offering. The future is very bright where she's at, and we are really excited for her. But more importantly, we're excited for the audience uh, to hear what we heard and to learn what we learned so we all get a little smarter today. So without any further ado, let's get into our interview here with Tiffany. Y'all enjoy. I tell you, Tiffany, thank you so much for coming on here. Your background is actually in like different supplementary cementitious materials, right? So um, tell Josh and Joe here really what your background is with fly ash and slag and stuff. And then how on earth this company from Canada comes in and just, you know, poaches you right out of the United States. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, uh, I guess, a kind of interesting story. I went to school for civil engineering and my plan was to be in design and I got recruited in Florida to work for a cement company in their fly ash division. And uh, that was my first kind of foray into material sales. And it was exciting because it obviously it still used my engineering background and, you know, so I could go in and, and try to help optimize concrete mixes and move material. Um, that was during the great recession. So, you know, that company separation technologies had one power plant and while I was there acquired two more. So we basically tripled our volume at a time where, um, you know, building had gone to its lowest since really the great depression. And, um, it was a really, really challenging time, but, you know, through those types of challenges comes opportunities. And, um, I was exposed to, um, you know, alternate ways to move these uh, materials and specifically fly ash. Um, we had the opportunity to export um, hundreds of thousands of tons of fly ash to Panama for the building of a hydroelectric dam. And so it really got, gave me a lot of exposure into the movement of materials, um, the power of supplementary cementitious materials, specifically fly ash and slag and helped helping to, you know, increase the performance of different concretes and properties and, um, so that's kind of what got me into it and, and I've never really left. So I obviously have experience, significant experience in fly ash, but also slag and lime based materials and cement. Um, and really my kind of passion is uh, trying to move into market materials that are less market ready, that have challenges from a performance perspective um, or for meeting uh, certain specs. 
and um, helping to improve those and beneficiate those and move them into uh, into the concrete industry. So one of the big things right now is the with the fly ash shortage that there is from the closing of the coal burning power plants. People are starting to dredge uh, the ash out of the ponds mm-hmm. and dry them and then sell those. Can you uh, teach us two things here? What does that market really look like from a volume and opportunity standpoint? And then number two, is that ash like really as good as what we were using before? So it's interesting. Um, with the closure of traditional coal burning power plants, obviously you have a lower volume of fresh material available to go into market and it becomes much more regional. And and so the cost of that material becomes very expensive when we're talking about moving material from the Midwest where there's still a lot of good fly ash, say up to the Northeast where there is nothing like in the New England region. So that makes it much more expensive. And so starting to look at reclaiming, not just from the side of finding material that's usable, but also to meet um, the EPA requirements to minimize um, ponding of of fly ash. So you're not allowed to pond ash anymore. After the big TBA Kingston spill, um, you're not allowed to have fly ash or bottom ash in a a pond, in water. So those have all got to be closed, dewatered and closed. And then second to that is landfilling material into the requirement now is into lined landfills. So it's really, really expensive. So if a utility has a legacy landfill that is not lined or is not being water monitored or is having leachate issues, um, in most cases, depending on the state, those landfills are gonna have to be dug up and that material is gonna have to be then transferred to um, a lined landfill that meets those requirements. So what leads to beneficiation is the utilities looking at the costs of doing these massive massive expensive projects and saying how do we mitigate those costs can we pull in a marketer that's going to take that material and help fill the gap of demand for these scms and so you know there's cases where we see that really it's kind of a unicorn where you find a landfill that has good quality material in there and it's not commingled with other materials like a bottom ash or gypsum or some other type of material that would have um, an impact on performance those are very unique and few and far between. So then you look at the other ones that need closed, but they're gonna need some form of treatment, whether that's processing just from classifying and sizing, drying um, or separating, there's a lot of things that go, go into it. And, and you know, to your point about, are those as good as a fresh production ash? In some cases it could be, but in other cases, you're talking about material that has been sitting um, either in a pond or a landfill that has then interacted with water and water with these types of materials starts to create that pozzolanic reaction. So you lose some reactivity. And that's what's interesting about carbon upcycling. They can take that waste material that has a really low reactivity rate and through their process, increase reactivity and and make a higher performing material. And so that's ultimately what um, caught my attention with the company and, um, you know, brought me over here. Are you able to go any specifics about what they're doing to treat that material to make it, you know, more reactive? Yeah, carbon upcycling, sure. Um, It's interesting. Carbon upcycling is a carbon tech company. So they're taking CO2 and they're utilizing that in really a two-step process to increase the reactivity and the performance of the material. So the technology is based around what they call reactor. And um, within that reactor is a catalytic ball mill. So there are balls that are coated with a catalyst that help to um, decrease the size of the material. So 
intuitively we know that um, finer particles can lead to a more reactive material, but this is a very unique process that also helps to what we call exfoliate the surface. So not only is it decreasing the size, making a finer material, but it's increasing the surface area. And during that process, CO2 is introduced through a stream, um, does not have to be a purified stream, doesn't have to be through carbon capture. We can introduce the flue gas stream directly from a power plant or a cement kiln. Um, and that interaction with the CO2 and the exfoliated material helps to uptake um, that CO2 and ultimately increase um, the, the reactivity of the material. I have one quick question about the reactor technology, about mm -hmm. the, the process itself. You know, reactors are used for multiple different purposes and processes, and there's different types of reactors as well. But this carbon upcycling uh, is relatively new. Has it been made possible due to advancements in reactor technology, or were you able to find something that already existed and kind of implement it into the process that you guys needed to have? This is developed and built exclusively through our technology. So it looks like, and, and we're in the process of moving on to our next iteration of what we call a reactor. If you would see the, the current reactor at site right now, it looks like a giant ball mill. Um, the next one is much more like a vertic vertical ball mill and it's kind of segregated into two streams, but this is something that was really, you could take a ball mill, but it's the internal workings that are very unique to the process. And again, it's that, um, that catalyst in there. Uh, and, and again, depending on the material that we would put through the system, um, it depends on the type of ball bearings that we would, would ultimately use um, for the processing of it. But it's really, it's, it's everything that's going on inside. So it's reducing size, it's increasing surface area, and then through the pressurization and the CO2 introduction, that's where all the magic happens. Well, it's interesting that you're taking these um, old particles and essentially, as you said, exfoliate. Mm -hmm. What you're doing is you're taking what's probably oxidized surfaces, right? And make it taking that off the surface, so you've exposed a fresh surface uh, that is now more reactive. So it's really interesting. I wouldn't have thought of that. That's yeah. um, it's a very novel way to look at trying to make this stuff work again. Absolutely, and and what is really unique about it is again, this is kind of plug and play at a facility. So if there is a coal burning utility that has bottom ash that they can't do anything with, we can take that material, we'll reduce the size. That's a necessary step anyways, to get the material fine enough to use um, in a concrete mix. But um, again, to pull that CO2 stream directly from the flue gas um, is a significant flexibility that we have over really any other carbon tech applications out there because we're not requiring a, a huge, like a, a high purity stream of CO2. Right now we are on site at a natural gas facility in, um, in Calgary, and it only has 4% CO2 um, in that flue gas stream that we're pulling directly from. So as you increase the purity of that CO2, you get better uptake. As you, the different materials that you introduce, you get variable in, in uptake of CO2. Um, but ultimately what you're getting at the end of the day is a much more reactive product that can offset more cement in your concrete mix. So you get a greener cement, and then you also get sequestration um, through that CO2 uptake as well. I want to find out who you're trying to market this to. Um, so quickly, the reason why I'm asking it is, is, as you mentioned, your interest is in taking things that um, have not been marketed or mm -hmm. not seem marketable yet and trying to turn those into technologies that have value in the industry. Um, 
we essentially did the same thing at this company. Right. Um, except, except with the change that the product that we use is not a byproduct or a waste, but rather processed further. So it's actually a specialty product. But we use it in conjunction with waste materials to make a, a better concrete. And you guys are kind of doing something similar just on the cementitious side mm-hmm. rather than the aggregate side. So I'd like to hear how you're marketing this, who you're going to, um, just fascinated in what the plan is. Sure. Well, let me start with um, the materials that we've tested. So we've tested well over 40 different types of materials. So anything from uh, a fresh production class, fly ash, bottom ash, natural pozzolans, mine tailings, talcs, clays, a number of different products. And we're able to prove that we can create a much more reactive material through our process um, and then be able to take that into either the cement production market or the concrete market. Um, What's really interesting right now, we kind of have a moment in time where ASTM is taking a better look at what their specifications are for alternate SCMs and expanding that from a prescriptive type of model to a performance-based model. And so within the next year, hopefully less than that, they will release a new spec um, that will relatively, that it will give us an idea on what we need to look at and how we measure the performance related to these alternate SCMs. So whether it's ash from a CFB boiler, um, it's microsilica, it's talc or mine tailings or aggregate fines, this will give us an opportunity to introduce that into the concrete market as an SCM and be able to test and verify that that material will meet certain performance requirements. Um, So that's what really kind of is helping push the ball forward on our testing of materials and validating that, you know, we are able to do, um, again, process improvement, reactivity improvement, and ultimately CO2 uptake in these materials in a quantifiable way that you can truly measure um, the difference in in raw material and the post-treated material um, from a performance and CO2 uptake perspective. Yeah, we had a discussion on the last episode of this podcast with Dr. Belkowitz, mm-hmm. and we actually went into a long discussion about P2P, P2P so prescriptive to performance-based. And he was uh, railing on that because it makes all the sense in the world, but the idea just completely fizzled out. And I'm wondering if you're seeing a different reception at ASTM uh, looking at these performance-based specs. Are they saying anything different to you that you think they really are going to allow people to move in that direction? So from my most recent conversation um, with someone that's very well involved, highly involved with um, ASTM C09, um, it is balloted right now for that performance spec for alternate SCMs and um, up for a vote. And then in December, there will be a meeting to either proceed with a final vote or you know, kick it down the line a little bit further. But it, it really does look like there's a lot of industry support for this. And and at the end of the day, it's the ready mix producers, it's the end users that are having a heck of a time um, finding materials that work within those kind of old school specifications or requirements. And they're dealing with finding, you know, lack of cement in the market. So we need to be able to open that up and kind of as a sign of the times, move a little bit more forward with as the technology advances, as long as we can measure and track the performance 
at the end of the day, it's the producer that's going to um, really take on the uh, liability of the performance of the material. And at the end of the day, they want their material to work. So if we can measure it and test it and show that it does work in a certain application, um, I think that that's the way we should go. And I do believe that that's where the industry is going. I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that for sure. I, I think for a long time, the gap between the academics of the ASTM mm -hmm. and the ACIs, that gap between them and the producers have been fairly wide. And I think necessity is really drawing that gap closer. So it's good to hear you say that. And I think when you sit and look at what the cement industry has been able to do with the 1Ls and the LC3s, like the different types of cements that they are developing in an effort to reduce their greenhouse gas and also extend their product, you know, you can only, you've got a, you know, a nameplate capacity at a cement kiln. So if there are ways to expand that further, you know, they're open to it. And, and I think they work as, as an organization together to help drive those um, specifications forward. And I think finally, we're seeing from an SCM perspective, the industry kind of coming together and understanding it's less about competition and more about moving, again, moving the industry forward. And there's an opportunity for everyone to, you know, to bring other materials to market with different technologies. See, she didn't say the word collusion. So <laughs> I'm not going to say We're not talking about no. price. <laughs> it is interesting to me when you talk about 1L that they spent, I mean, it's been 15 years. I mean, they knew about 1L 30 years ago mm -hmm. and then like 10 or 15 years ago, they made this like super hard push trying to get everybody to use Portland limestone cement. And then like five years ago, they said, screw it. We're going to make everybody use it. And then this year they said, all right, we're all changing our plants. We're all going to 1L. Everybody at the same time, all at once on the same year. How's that? Mm -hmm. Exactly. It's amazing, right? Yeah, amazing. But mm -hmm. you didn't say that. Just want to be clear. Um, <laughs> what she is saying, though, is that if we're going to go that far, we also need to go further. We need to look at these other options. And so if we can make this switch, we need to make other switches. Uh, what I want to step back for a second, you touched on something that um, is a really, really big deal in your world, which makes it a big deal in the concrete world. And I don't know that everybody is up to speed on the story. So if you know more, I'd love to hear about it. You mentioned the TVA uh, spill in Kingston. Mm -hmm. And uh, that that was huge, an absolute disaster in East Tennessee. Mm -hmm. Do you think you could uh, sort of go through that? Like what happened there? What were the causes of that failures that have really resonated throughout this industry? Ultimately, the TVA disaster was a result of a breach in the, in the dam wall there of that extremely large ash pond. And when you think of fly ash, it's like ball bearings. So you get a little bit of water to it and that is going to, it's going to flow. And so when there was that, the breach and that water commingled with ash ran through for miles uh, to destroy that area, um, not only from an environmental standpoint, but from a health standpoint, there were major implications. And so that really raised the red flag on um, how we control these CCP residuals. You know, what do we do with the disposal of that? And, you know, unfortunately, there are two sides of the coin. You know, people look at it as um, a product for use in concrete. What's the best way to get rid of that is to, you know, let's put it in concrete and then it will forever be sequestered in that in that material. And then there's the other side of it that looks at this is a hazardous material and it needs to be treated as such. But ultimately, at the end of the day, 
you know, we need to approach it in, in the most viable way. And I think that's what the industry is pushing for. But, you know, breaching the gap of billions of dollars of remediation or uh, construction and removal of these legacy ponds and, and landfills, and then looking at the gap in the market, it's the technology that's going to meet in the middle and help to bridge that. And so I think that's what's driving a lot of these other specifications and industry acceptance um, around these materials that we can really use it as a giant recycling program, you know, instead of just like burying it in the ground, let's use it to the best of its ability. And when we talk about the 1Ls and these other cements that are coming to market, a lot of people feel as if the performance of that material is less than what a traditional OPC is. And um, so when you have a more reactive material or a posalonic material um, that can help aid in late day strengths and improve performance of the material, why don't we look at that and why aren't we considering that? And I think this is this is the time that, you know, kind of opens up those opportunities for us. Yeah, we actually did a lot of testing. Um, we have no connection with the cement companies. Got a lot of friends that work at cement companies. Mm-hmm. No connection, no, no formal connection. So uh, we were doing some work um, with a ready-mix company and we did hundreds of batches of concrete comparing uh, just regular type one to to 1L cements mm-hmm. using different aggregates. And in cold weather concreting, those 1L cements really struggled to yeah. gain strength. They really struggled. And it's unfortunate because it was marketed to everyone this, in this rush switch, something that I don't know that anybody actually saw coming out there that these all these cement companies at the exact same time were like, nope, we're just switching everything to 1L. Uh, it was being marketed as like, hey, it's one-to-one. Right. We're going to switch the cements. You're not going to see any difference. We did all the testing. Well, all that testing was done at like perfect temperatures and perfect situations in the lab. And when you get out in the real world and you start, you know, changing different ash sources, like you said, when you start changing different aggregate sources and when you start getting different weather conditions and different things, it just, it's not the same and it doesn't feel the same and it doesn't finish the same. It's no. different. Yeah. And so- Materials like yours that can make it more reactive in those cold weather environments with 1L cement, I mean, you're going to see a vast improvement in the concrete characteristics. No, I agree. And and you're even missing human error um, when we talk about um, lab scale testing to real world applications. (laughs) There's a major... Human error is always implied. I'm going to say that (laughs) that goes with the regular concrete too. This podcast does not ignore human error. In fact, we have a segment at the end of the show, we're going to ask you the craziest thing you've ever seen. All right. So we focus on human error. But Thank you yeah. for the heads up. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's, I mean, the, the margin of error is much slimmer. So um, having materials that are not just going to offset, a, a, you know, a percentage of your cement in a mix to decrease cost, let's look at it differently. Let's look at a material that's going to increase the performance of your your concrete mix that's going to be able to potentially gain um, some green points or, you know, get you when we talk about the new infrastructure bill and the buy green initiative, I think that those are other things that we want to look at. 1L helps to fit that bill, but if we can go a step further and at the end of the day, have a better product, you know, for the community, for the end user, um, we have all the knowledge and capacity to do it now. And and, and so that's what we want to look at. So for like the past 10 years, everybody's been screaming, the sky's falling, there's no ash left, there's no ash left, right. it's all running out. Well, 
we've been around and there are some parts of the country that is absolutely true. Mm-hmm. Is fresh ash is absolutely gone. They've just went ahead and redesigned everything straight cement. Um, I think Joey just installed some of our part last week at a plant that did the exact way that they're just like, you know what, we're done. We're just not even going to try and get this ash anymore. Oh yeah. They get tired of messing with it for sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, uh, with that being the situation, this materials that uh, you guys are working to bring to the market, what does that supply really look like? Are we talking about you're going to be able to service like a few cities like Calgary and Pittsburgh where you're at? Mm-hmm. Or is this something you really think you're going to be able to get nationwide on a supply side? I mean, obviously the goal is to go nationwide and be able to provide a, a solution in areas that ultimately need it the most. And so when you look at it from a marketing perspective, with any technology, there's a cost. And that's why it's it, in our case, to be able to take a low cost or zero cost, or even a, a cost offset type of material that is otherwise a waste or not being utilized and put it through the process so that it's economically viable in the market is, is very important. So the first steps would definitely be regional. And when I look at it from a supply demand perspective within the US, you know, we know, you know, in, in certain parts of the country, you know, in the Midwest and sometimes down south, there is still a decent supply of, uh, of ash or even slags that would help kind of fill that gap for SCMs. But when you look at New England or out west in California, where there is no legacy coal ash, there is no fresh production ash and slag imports are, you know, are, are starting to minimize, it's seeing where we can, you know, have the best impact in, in, in a market that can ultimately, you know, take on, you know, obviously the cost of processing. And it's not a significant cost by any means, but when we're talking about, you know, in Kentucky where you can get, you know, sometimes a consistent supply of ash, sometimes not, sometimes variable quality, but you're paying in the 40 or $50 ton range. If we can move out and, and provide a similar um, opportunity for materials in that same, um, you know, in that same price range in an area like Boston, um, they could really ultimately use it. That That's where we'd be targeting. But at the end of the day, it's really kind of a two-phased approach. You know, we're talking with um, cement producers to help utilize material, increase reactivity, either for blending at the back end or as a clinker replacement. That's one thing. And so that would have a much larger impact on a region because we're talking just volume. Um, but there's other ways that we can go. We have a partner in... Um, in Canada that we will be installing our first commercial unit and it's right at a ready mix facility. So they're able to take an off spec material, um, you know, for very little cost, if, if, if no cost at all and put it through our process and then ultimately utilize it there in their production uh, of concrete. So there's really two steps and it depends on how we go about it from a commercial perspective. Well, congratulations on your first commercial success. Thank you. Thank you. There was a time where that wasn't what your interest was. A short time ago, you decided to help a Bitcoin mining company. Mm-hmm. And you're the only person I know that actually like went hardcore in the paint on that. I've got a buddy, best friend from back home, him and like other buddies that we have from high school. Like they all pulled a bunch of money together, uh, built like these supercomputers yeah. and they're mining uh, but they're doing it like in their house mm-hmm. and eventually somebody's going to get mad because their power draw in their houses are insane. Yeah. Absolutely insane. But your company did something different. 
where you guys actually like had a power plant mm -hmm. and were powering this country. Please tell tell the people what you were doing and your short break away from the uh, Concord industry. Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, quite honestly, it wasn't a complete divergence from concrete. Um, so Stronghold Digital Mining um, had a business has a business model of um, mining Bitcoin through their own power production. And um, the fuel that they utilize is refuse coal. So Josh, you know, from being um, from central PA, there are mounds and mounds, like up to 2 billion tons of what they call refuse coal, but waste coal. So it's the overburden from um, underground coal mining activities. And that is actually the number one um, source of uh, water contamination in Pennsylvania. So there, there's major issues with that. And they sit and spontaneously combust and emit all kinds of toxic gases. So um, these power plants had build, been built around the region called CFB boiler plants or circulating fluidized bed plants. And so they're unique in the coal burning power industry because they can take a very low BTU value coal or as a throwback to my West Virginia days, you can even burn a couch in there. You can burn tires, you can burn municipal waste, whatever it is, <laughs> what just, to get that, <laughs> just to get that turbine turning. So Stronghold's model is we are going to take this waste and we're going to offset the energy demand from and the CO2 release from, you know, mining Bitcoin because of power requirements and production. And we're going to offset that by cleaning up the environment here in Pennsylvania. And so um, Stronghold owns two power plants in the state. And I joined to help get that material into a marketing condition to move into the concrete market. Um, really, really exciting. Uh, when I joined uh, in about August of last year, they pushed really hard and went public at the end of October. And um, after hitting a few snags and then Bitcoin goes down, uh, they kind of changed their model a little bit, um, but continuing to mine Bitcoin. And it was really very exciting, still exciting to watch what they do. I can't speak too much on the Bitcoin mining side. All I know is what you had said. It's supercomputers that pull a ton of energy. But again, the model was super unique because they were producing their own power through their own fuel source. And it had the flexibility of either sending electricity to their on-site, what they call data centers, where they're mining Bitcoin, or if the grid needed power, they could send power directly to the grid. So really, it was almost like a grid security thing as well. We talked about batteries at the earlier part of the call. This is very similar to that. I mean, it's acting as a battery. So if there was a need and a demand for electricity at the grid, we could send it directly to them. If the, the need wasn't there, then we can send it to the Bitcoin miners and really kind of balance out the, the economics of, of both plays. That's awesome. And that's technology I'm sure you can scale up because they're building server farms every single day mm -hmm. and they still require a massive amount of energy. Well, that's exactly it. Yeah. Some of the ones they built in Texas. Yeah. I mean, unbelievably warehouse size. Oh yeah. Server. The Midwest is getting full of them. Oh yeah. And I think that's, that's part of the model too, is like using Bitcoin mining to fund the, the build out of these data centers because it's an incredible amount of, um, transformers and runs of electricity wiring and, and security and then being able to transition that to cloud-based ai or you know these other types of high security data farms or centers um yeah there, there's a ton of upside potential with that as well 
That's super exciting. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. Yeah. Yeah. It's wild that somebody can go uh, from the power plant side of things, sawing into concrete and then says, oh, wait, see another opportunity. Let me use these power plants to literally power the future of currency. And then says, all right, well, let me get back into concrete too. But <laughs> I feel like you... you never get out of concrete. Hey man, put that on a t-shirt. Yeah. I don't know. It almost (laughs) sounded like uh like she's trapped, like it's Stockholm syndrome. (laughs) I am. I am. Anytime I kind of take a step out, I miss it. It is good people. You're Mm -hmm. right about that. You guys Well, I was gonna ask, like, are can you see into the future? How forward thinking are you? Because you went to school for civil engineering and and your first job kind of led you into this path where you are gonna be in demand for quite some time because you are literally specializing in what everyone's trying to do right now in the energy sector, which is reduce carbon emissions and and create new um, thoughtful, innovative ways to generate energy. Josh, I wish I could tell you that it was that deliberate, but it wasn't. Um, but I will say kind of once I started down the path of cement and SCMs and then working with Stronghold as a startup kind of understanding the ins and outs of that, you start to get exposed to other things that are coming down the line and some other advancements in technology and seeing it through a different lens. I think that in the concrete world, we kind of get stuck in the way we've always done things. And so to kind of look from a different side of things that there is a future in and kind of trying to marry the two, um, that's exciting. And and I kind of like to keep busy and, and continue to kind of grow. Um, and so with carbon upcycling, you know, there's a lot of carbon tech companies out there, but looking at them all, this company has the opportunity to really change um, the entire way we look at SCMs. You know, it's not just a raw material. It can be a manufactured SCM to a certain performance requirement. And that opens the door to so many things. And I really feel like that's that's going to be the wave of the future. Well, the scarcity of flash is what's driving that. And mm-hmm. well, not just on like volume, but pricing. And Paul, like we've we've done testing with a number of um, steel slags that we traditionally just use um, GGBFS slag for, for applications in concrete. But there are a number of other types of slags that are produced through steel making process that aren't utilized. And the steel industry is trying to decarbonize as well. So it, it's being pushed from a number of different angles, um, you know, to be able to find end uses for these otherwise waste products. And that's when, you know, technologies like this can can make a huge play in that in that market. Yeah. And if you can keep the cost per ton below cement, then you should be successful at the end of the day. We've seen since the time we entered the industry what, 13 years ago, 12, 13 years ago now, that the price of like the Class C fly ash went from $38 a ton to $80 a ton. And then in some places, it's $100, $110 a ton once it's delivered to the site. Right. And at that point, you're into the $110 a ton range, you're getting real close to the price of cement. Right. And that's a good point that you make. I, I think that from a fly ash industry perspective, we've probably not done a great job at talking about the added benefits of using a fly ash or SCM in your concrete because of the performance enhancements and really looked at it from the old school perspective of we're offsetting our expensive powder in the mix. 
And, and I, and I think that's another way we need to kind of look at it. And a lot of DOTs require ashes for ASR mitigation and other, you know, other reasons. And, but so, you know, to your point, being less than the cost of cement or even equal to the cost of cement in consideration of performance enhancement is a, is definitely a big thing, but being able to kind of be cognizant of, of both things, not only cost, um, but also, you know, at the end of the day, the impact on the end product is important. Well, there has to be a real performance benefit because right now the prices are getting really close to cement in some areas. And when the supply is inconsistent, we're already just as expensive as the other stuff. I'm just going to switch. Like we'll figure out our pump mixes later. I'm not worried about the ASR mitigation. That's another story. So. I'm wondering, are you guys using these 40 different materials you've tested? Are you putting those through ASR test as well? Because that's the, the next big frontier, because as flash goes away, mitigating ASR becomes that much more difficult. No, absolutely. I mean, the material that we test, the initial tests, what we're really looking for from a performance perspective through the reactor is um, increase in strength activity index and decrease in water demand. Those are the two primary constituents, the enhancements that we see um, as the material comes out of the reactor. And then as we move further down the line, it's testing that material through the whole gamut of concrete performance um, to make sure that we're producing a material that, that at the end of the day, whether it's through us or through the partnerships that we have, is going to meet the requirements and do you know ultimately what we say it's going to do. We've made it to the point in the program where it's our, our favorite segment, uh, and we, we gave you a, a little bit of a forewarning here, but uh, you've been, this doesn't have to pertain to just a concrete job site since you've been many different, many different places that have been unique to the traditional um, concrete construction workplace. But what is the craziest thing you've seen on a job site? And that can pertain to anything you do, whether it is working at CUT or mining Bitcoin and the, the gamut. Maybe maybe stop a little short of your West Virginia days. And we'll <laughs> yeah, it gets real crazy. <laughs> it gets real crazy when we go back that far. Oh, geez, it was. Um, maybe not crazy, but I, I would say super interesting. Um, when I was working in Florida, it, it, it I guess when you get put into a situation, you've got to, you, you've got to really, it always starts with working in Florida, right? Oh, oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get this a Florida is, man story. This is episode, this is episode 35. <laughs> the majority of the people are not in Florida. And almost all the stories are like, well, are you serious? Yeah. <laughs> this is going to be boring though. This is not necessarily anything exciting like that. Um, but I would say the most interesting or craziest project that I was involved in was really when we were exporting material and, you know, you got to fly by the seat of your pants. And when we loaded a 50,000 ton ocean going vessel by pneumatic tanker truck, and we literally just blew like 10 trucks at a time into that. I mean, it was, it was an insane project to be a part of. Um, super interesting. The planning and just the logistics of it was, was crazy. But I mean, again, being able to pull something like that off was uh, was a pretty exciting time. I mean, there's nothing really too crazy that I've seen. You know, they I'm the fly ash person, so I always try to stay out of the mess because they're always pointing fingers. Like if there's a problem, it's the fly ash. Um, 
<laughs> yeah, so I don't, I don't have anything too uh, too crazy outside of that. Sorry to disappoint. No, that's okay. We get yelled at by our logistics department on a daily basis, so oh, yeah. I can understand how a project like that would be a little bit intense. Oh, it was crazy. It was crazy. Where were you sending that fly ash to? That was going. That was going to Panama for a giant hydroelectric dam in the middle of the jungle. So it was just like from a logistics perspective, it was it was crazy. Um, we didn't have storage at the at the port, so I mean, it was literally taking material from from the utility directly to the port. Uh, you know, just the train of trucks going, and like I said, just the coordination was uh, was pretty intense. But to see it all pulled off was was exceptional. How did they blow it off the ship? They had, I think it was a Civitel unloader at the port side of things um, where it was destined. So we were blowing it in and I think they were vacuuming it out. How much was it? How many tons? 50,000 tons in a vessel. That is cool. So think about 25 tons in a tanker truck. Yeah, it's crazy. I'm I'm thinking about the sale. Like, could you imagine? Oh yeah, there's a 50,000 ton order. (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> Going out the ocean right yeah. Done. Yeah. <laughs> Call me Must next year. Next. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Call me when that commission check hits. Yeah. All right. Yeah. If only. Well, what I liked about your background was the flash stuff. We've, I mean, we've done 35 episodes now. A couple of repeat guests that were friends of ours. But for the most part, like every person that's come on here had like a completely different view of the industry mm-hmm. we've, had, we've had qc guys on concrete qc guys for cement uh directors of cement divisions uh, phd academics industry people i mean everything but we've not had anybody that had like primarily fly ash background so from in the generality standpoint i think that not just from fly ash but other scms it, the industry is changing and um i think more and more people are open to looking at alternate ways to do things, alternate materials, you know, and how do we help to kind of improve the environment and, you know, and, and decrease greenhouse gas emissions. Um, and, and this is a way to do both. Well, what do you mean about beneficiating? I, I don't know what you mean by that. I, I guess like carbon upcycling would be considered beneficiating as well, but it's taking a material that is, um, doesn't meet spec or out of quality and improving it. And from an industry perspective, you know, you've got maybe five or six main players in the, in the flyish markets. And each one of them has kind of their own unique beneficiation technology um, from, you know, electrostatic precipitation, which is like separation technology separator to carbon burnout units that are basically just reburning the ash to remove the carbon. And then some other kind of indirect, um, uh, combustion processes to help improve the material. So there, there are a number of technologies out there that are trying to be employed in conjunction with um, reclamation and remediation projects that, you know, that are interesting and all kind of have their own pluses and minuses. And, you know, I think that carbon upcycling technology fits well into that from both an economic standpoint and ease to plug and play and ultimately um, the best kind of performance improvement across the board. Well, you mentioned all these old ash ponds are going to have to be uh, dewatered and yeah. fixed or removed mm-hmm. or whatever. They're going to have to be reclamated in some way. Any idea on how many of those there are? Oh, geez, always. Um, 
I mean, I would be guessing, but there, there has to be we do a lot of guests hundreds, hundreds of millions of tons, hundreds of millions, if not, you know, upwards of nearly a billion. When you think about a traditional, if, if for round numbers, say a 250 megawatt power plant produces 250,000 tons of ash, and that varies depending on the coal and the ash content of the coal. Um, but if you would use those round numbers and then look at the amount of energy that's produced by coal burning power plants or, or previously employed coal burning power plants, the numbers are um, are really, really crazy. Um, so there is so much potential to do reclamation. Yes, yeah, so you've got all those ponds out there. And then what percentage of those would you get? Look, we do a lot of speculating on the show. Yeah, we love yeah. speculating. It's like our favorite thing. So. Would you, how would you guess of the hundreds of millions, potentially billions of tons of ponded ash that's out there, how many of those are going to be forced reclamation due to these regulations that are put in place? I think that if you, if there are cases of unlined landfills or ponded materials right now, 100% of those will have to be remediated or closed. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, dependent on where we sit with the governing body of, of the country depends on what the EP regulate EPA regulations are and when those are being um, employed. But um, from an industry perspective, the push is on now to do something and remediate um, or close those ponds. So looking at technologies and where the monies come from to do that is a whole other um, is a whole other thing um, because it's insanely expensive to to either dewater, and landfill that material, um, or you know, reclaim it and put it in a line landfill. The money coming for those projects, those aren't like federal tax dollars going to that. That's ha that's having to be done privately. In some, it depends on the state. If the state is regulated or unregulated from an energy perspective, um, if if the state is um, unregulated, then they're able to pass that through to the energy consumer. So there'll be a cost on your electricity bill to help fund that. And we see that in like the Carolinas and Virginia in states like Ohio, um, those utilities don't have the ability to push that through to the ratepayer, And so then the utility takes that on. And so in a lot of cases you're seeing either from um, a, a byproduct standpoint, like a, a waste um, disposal site or even through emissions controls and, and the scrubbers that have to be put onto these plants, sometimes the costs outweigh the performance of those plants and that leads to retirement. Holy smokes. That's yeah. crazy. Look, mm -hmm. I don't want to pay for the reclamation of any of this stuff. Right. So don't put it on my electric bill. Sure. But when the government comes in and says, Oh, by the way, this thing we told you you could do, turns out you can't do. Yeah. And forces a business into doing that stuff. That gets into a whole nother like situation, right? Oh, right. I mean, a lot of the retirements are not coming from the, the fact that these plants are old and outdated and aren't running anymore. It's because the cost of, meeting these environmental regulations. Well, I think that about does it, Ms. Tiffany. We're going to let you get out of here. We really appreciate you joining us, talking all things Flash. We are way smarter now than we were before we walked <laughs> into this room together. Well, thank you guys so much. It was fun. Yeah, we appreciate it. Yep. Talk to you soon. All right, and that's going to do it for this edition of the Add 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast. We want to say thanks to Tiffany for coming on the program. Uh, and enlightening us uh, for all things fly ash and carbon upcycling related. Also threw in a little crypto mining information there, which is always good. Uh, we like to keep it diverse here on the podcast. 
Thanks to Active Gel 208 for our presenting sponsor and making this show possible. And uh, between episodes, make sure you find us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn uh, for some more content and also a video element to some of that content as well. So check us out. Give us a five-star rating. Tell a friend about us. And see us next time here on the Ad 10 Gallons Concrete Podcast.